1: Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Rayland Robica about his book, Hip Hop's Inheritance, from the Harlem Renaissance to the Hip Hop Feminist Movement, published in 2011 by Lexington Books. Hip Hop's Inheritance is the first book in a trilogy in which Robica examines contemporary hip hop culture's concerns with African Americans, women's, and LGBT struggles from Africana, feminist, and queer critical studies perspectives. The other two books in the series are Hip Hop's Amnesia, which is currently in print, and The Hip Hop Movement, due to be released in 2013. Rabaka begins Hip Hop's inheritance with an explication of Africana critical theory and how it diverges from the traditional Marxist canon by emphasizing the influence of race and gender as well as class in the history of American oppression. He then applies this theoretical framework to an empirical understanding of the artistic resistance black men and women, straight, gay, and lesbian, have shown towards America's historically racist, sexist, and heteronormative culture and structure. He discusses the minstrel shows of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the New Negro of the Harlem Renaissance in the 20s and 30s, the black arts and feminist arts movements of mid-century, and finally, conscious and feminist rap, along with homo hop of the late 20th and 21st centuries. Rabica's story throughout is twofold. First, he strives to present a theoretically consistent account of black, feminist, and queer arts movements of the past century and a half. Second, he speaks directly to contemporary hip hoppers, rappers and otherwise, urging them to acknowledge their artistic ancestors and not fall victim to the seductive racist, sexist, and homophobic trappings of modern commercial culture. Rayland Robaca lives in Boulder, Colorado, which is where I reached him for this interview.
0: Hello, Rayland, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Oh. Uh, it's it's great to be here thanks why don't we start uh, with a bit of your biography just tell us a little bit about yourself please oh I uh
2: I started out as a drummer um, mostly playing in uh, church and then ended up going into jazz drumming uh, for undergrad and uh, philosophy of art so mm-hmm. real real connection to uh, jazz and I think uh, my love affair with jazz led me to hip-hop so I was in a group called Collective Consciousness on the East Coast that we uh, we played uh, the whole spectrum, everything from bebop to hip-hop, um, uh, in, our, in our music. And uh, so I've done a lot of that. Uh, also a spoken word artist, a poet. Um, yeah, and, and so just kind of took some of my journey um, from the music. Um, yeah.
0: so, so did you grow up on the East Coast? No, I
2: actually grew up uh, in the South. Um, and Dallas, Texas. Uh-huh. So I, I grew up in the South, but um, have folk, uh, you know, scattered all throughout the South and really have been trying to make lots of connections between um, a lot of Southern African-American culture and, and african, uh, african culture and Latin America and the Caribbean uh, and, and everything. And so, you know, growing up so close to New Orleans, you, you, you get a wide range of music, you get a wide range of sounds and, uh, and, and everything and just being very, very influenced by those who a, a long time. Um, so, yeah, grew, grew up in the South, Was um, uh, went to high school at Booker T. Washington High School for the Performing and Visual Arts. So, had a lot of arts training um, as a kid. And, um, yeah, so went to the same high school that uh, produced Erica Badu, Nora Jones, Edie uh-huh. Burkell, New Bohemians. Um, So really, really interesting space to be exposed to so much uh, art history at such an early age. So just feel like I have a wider palette. There's more colors, I think, uh, sometimes on the palette to sort of push certain issues.
0: Was academia always your career plan, or were you going to be a musician? Or No, you...
2: I was going to be a straight-up jazz drummer. Uh, I was going to be a straight-up jazz drummer. And, uh, life on the road just does not agree with me. I, I'm, uh, you know, fair. I'm a little different, a little, little bohemian. And so, yeah, and, and just, you know, really, it was, it was a time in the 90s that I just feel like a lot of jazz musicians were pushing the envelope, and we wanted to do more than simply swing. Um, The way with Marcellus and and those kinds of people were saying we wanted to sort of mix uh, jazz with uh, funk and soul and hip-hop and and all those kinds of things. And so jazz uh, kind of became like a straitjacket after a while. And so that's what sort of led me into I was thinking, well, hmm, uh, what what can I do to really kind of make sure that people understand that that we have tradition and then you have innovation on the tradition. And so for me – of Being able to teach courses in hip hop and 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 African American studies and women's studies was a way that I could sort of bring all of my passions together, and uh, so that that's kind of where I'm at right now.
0: And, and, and so you you've written a number of books. How did you uh, come? This is this is the first book in a trilogy. Yeah. How did you how how did you come to to write this trilogy or or envision um.
2: it? Great question. started out really um, moving more in the social science direction. I've done the bulk of my work on uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who founded the NAACP. So a lot of my work was more in vain with civil rights and social science. And um, how I got interested in um, actually writing about um, uh, hip hop and, and black popular culture um, was, was the last chapter of The Souls of Black Folk is called Of Our Spiritual Strivings. And in that chapter, Du Bois Basically, really creates a manifesto for African American music criticism, and I was I just I wanted a way to sort of combine my work in the arts and the humanities with my social science work, and it just seemed to make a lot of sense that since I'm teaching all of these classes on hip hop every semester, from you know course on uh, hip hop women's studies to just basic introduction to hip hop studies, hip hop history, and so it made sense for me to sort of combine. Social science and arts and humanities uh, approach. So, in the book, you, you'll notice, at least in the beginning of the book, I, you know, sort of push what I'm going to call an alternative history of hip hop, and then also develop a critical theory of rap music
0: and hip hop culture. Mm-hmm. So, so let's get to the book then. Um, first, uh, please. Uh, uh, What is hip-hop? It's a lot more than rap, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, I hope that's not too ignorant of a question. No, oh,
2: absolutely not. I would say that that with the uh, popularity of um, commercial rap, there are a lot of misconceptions about what uh, hip-hop is. I just want to state it outright. This is something that we get from KRS-One, but rap is something that you do. Hip-hop is something that you live. Um, Essentially, the way I break it down in the book is that rap music is literally the soundtrack to a wider and broader hip hop movement. And and so rap is one of the soundtracks I would argue that neo soul is a secondary soundtrack. And I think there's a tendency to focus overly focus if you will on rap music, but in 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 terms of what I'm saying in terms of hip hop culture, um hip hop is oh, I mean it's, it's a full-blown culture with its own sort of political agenda, its own social agenda, its own language, its own Literature. Um, there's a wide, there's a wide range of things that that go into hip hop, and I just think that often hip hop is collapsed only into rap music because rap music is the most popular expression of hip hop culture. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, and you already mentioned there, there is something known as hip hop studies, right?
2: Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this has been going on whew, for a while. I, I would say that one of the things that distinguishes the hip hop generation from um, the Harlem Renaissance generation, or even the um, lost generation of the 1920s, um, even, you know, the beats uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, is that we are one of the first generations that have access to new technologies that actually allow us to document our our movement, if you will, as it's actually taking place. So right now on my shelf... Um, I have probably anywhere between 60 to 75 documentaries on various aspects of hip hop culture, and I don't know if you could really go back during the Hall of, during the 1920s, during the Harlem Renaissance period, or the Lost Generation period. I don't know if they would have this much, you know, documentation and, and people chronicling their generation as as it was actually unfolding. And I think that that's part of the uniqueness of the hip hop generation is is that we're actually doing a lot of social commentary, a lot of um, documentaries of our beloved music and culture as it's actually evolving. Mm-hmm.
0: So you spend much of Chapter 1 uh, outlining uh, your, your theoretical argument, and okay. uh, you discuss Africana critical theory, uh-huh. uh, feminist critical theory, queer critical theory. So give us a rundown of, of your theoretical perspective for, oh, for this book.
2: All right. Um, you know, Matt, there are a lot of books out there on hip-hop, but you will find that a lot of them are more or less loose collections of essays or they are, um, I don't know, they, they seem to be free-floating above the the history and the culture and the politics and the social organizations that really led to the origins and evolution of hip-hop culture. And so with my book, what I wanted to do was really sort of explore uh, hip-hop epistemologies and hip-hop methodology. So what I, what I wanted to explore was basically you know, hip-hop knowledges. If African Bambada uh, and them, you know, in terms of the early, early hip-hop, if they said, well, there are four primary elements of hip-hop culture, you got rapping, you got DJing, you got breakdancing, and you got graffiti writing, and then in the mid-'80s, African Bambada adds this fifth element of hip-hop culture, which is knowledge, then that means that hip-hop studies really is an outgrowth of one of the original, one of the fundamental elements of hip-hop culture And so I'm beginning to think as more and more people write books and dissertations and and scholarly articles on hip-hop, it would be important to develop a hip-hop-specific methodology, right? And so for me in the book, the the, the introduction basically sort of lays out my method of how one goes about doing um, hip-hop research because I think that just taking a general musicological view of hip-hop isn't really going to get to the nuances of hip-hop in the fact that rap music actually reflects a lot of what's going on, not simply in urban America but actually in suburban America, even places like Boulder where I'm at right now. I mean you'd be amazed at the kinds of interesting innovative aspects of hip hop culture that are that are you know taking place out here
0: mm-hmm. um and, and so um again then where where does uh so, so all these fit within hip hop studies, feminist and queer theory and those uh, do they all uh, how do they fit with the hip hop
2: and, and, well, the whole notion is that, that hip-hop as a movement, at least as, I'm artic- as I articulate it, right. hip-hop really is a multi-issue movement. Mm-hmm. It's a multi-issue culture. So, say for instance, uh, Matt, if we were to talk about the civil rights movement, if I were to ask you, well, what's the central theme of the hip-hop movement, um, excuse me, of the civil rights movement, right. obviously you would say, well, civil rights, it would be, you know, uh, issues around social justice, um, you know racial equality and so on and so forth with, with with the women's liberation movement we would say gender equality women's liberation so on and so forth hip hop is a little thorny in that it's really a multi-issue movement in that we actually are critiquing race, we're critiquing gender class, sexuality militarism, I mean um, th- there's a wide range of things that are going on in terms of, uh, of hip hop and I think that also speaks to the fact that hip hop is arguably one of the first uh, popular cultures and popular musics to emerge in the post-civil rights movement, period. And so that, that's going to make all the difference in the world because we're talking about the first generation of Americans to actually grow up in a, in a desegregated and awkwardly integrated American society. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's literally what... We, when we start talking about hip-hop youth, we're talking about the first generation of Americans to basically come of age in a desegregated America. And that, in and of itself speaks to the distinctiveness and the uniqueness of, you know, rap
0: music and hip-hop culture. Mm -hmm. And I think one of your arguments in the book is, because part of your book is theoretical, part's empirical, but part of it you're you're speaking to the hip-hop generation. um, And aren't you asking them to, to, just because you now live in this as you call it, awkwardly desegregated world. Don't forget how we got here, right? That's true.
2: That's true. And, and for me, what I'm saying is that I feel like there are a lot of hip hop heads who really they have amnesia, which which is going to take us to the second volume of the trilogy. But really, I think there are high levels of amnesia that are going on. That we are at, we have actually, as a generation, I believe that we have forgotten a lot of things that we really should remember. But even as I say that, I'm gonna contradict and say, Well really, I don't think that our K through twelve system has actually taught us and exposed us to a lot of the history, the alternative histories, if you will, that we really should be exposed to in order for us to really sort of um inherit what we should from uh, the civil rights generation or the, 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 the lost generation and so on and so forth. So I think that there's high levels of historical amnesia floating around here, and one of the things that this book wanted to do was to actually develop a theory and an alternative history, so a critical theory and an alternative history of rap music and hip-hop culture.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and before we get too much farther, tell us about the, just briefly about the other two books in the trilogy. How, do they, how does it all line up?
2: Um, well, this, this book, Hip Hop's Inheritance, uh, as you know, is really a, a, a book that focuses more so on cultural and artistic movements that, that really sort of led to the genesis of rap music and hip hop culture. The other books actually um, emphasize more so various musics. So say, for instance, in Hip Hop's Amnesia, uh, the, the second volume of the trilogy, I take on um, all of the major African-American or black popular musics between, let's say, 1900 and 1950. So it does, it does the first half of the 20th century. So it looks at blues, ragtime, jazz, classic jazz, and bebop. And so it looks at those musics and the way that those musics really reflect larger social and political movements that were going on in black America at the time, if not mainstream America. And the third volume, which is called the Hip-Hop Movement, takes on um, all of the black popular musics and black popular movements from uh, basically the, the post-war period, so between 1945 and the present. And so it takes on rhythm and blues, rock and roll, soul, funk, disco, and electro. And it actually says basically many people are sort of downplaying the fact that rhythm and blues was really sort of the black popular music soundtrack of the civil rights movement. But a corollary soundtrack, I argue, would be rock and roll. If we go back and look at the origins of rock and roll, people like Muddy uh, Waters and Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley and even Eddie James and Big Mama Thornton and those kinds of folks, before you even get sort of rock and roll crossing over, most people will acknowledge that African, you know, that, that African Americans were at the origins of what, what's called rock or either rock and roll right now. And so, rock and roll, to a certain extent, for me, represents this sort of integration ethos this sort of integration impulse on the part of the civil rights youth Mm
0: -hmm. and and I suppose then certain certain what you call commercial rap is is that the equivalent of that now
2: very very much so and in fact I argue in uh, the hip-hop movement that rock rap as a genre Mm -hmm. uh, groups like Rage Against the Machine 311 um, I mean there's so many people like Michael Franti I mean there's so many of the rock rappers out there who really, really are sort of continuing some of that integrationist uh, impulse that we actually inherited from the rock and rollers, from the early rock and rollers. I mean, not just, you know, Bo, Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, but folks like Elvis Presley, Bill Haley, Buddy Holly. I mean, it's really, really interesting the way that the lines between race, racial politics and, and, and music were blurred in the 1950s and the 1960s to where, I mean, I mean, they made integration a reality musically, even as they were trying to make it a reality
0: socially mm-hmm. so then uh, the chapters two and three and four, especially, uh, you look into the the history and the, the antecedents I guess uh, of rap, so chapter two, you start with a discussion of, of minstrel shows and right. so so what can that tell us about modern hip hop looking back to minstrel well I, I, think,
2: I think that the whole minstrel show. Um, phenomenon is, is just really, really fascinating because what most, what most even cultural critics and music critics uh, uh, fail to acknowledge is that m- the minstrel show in America was the first form of popular culture in, in the United States of America. It was the first indigenous and authentic form of American popular culture. It begins, as you know, around the 1830s and it goes all the way through to the 1930s uh, with folks like Al Jolson and Bert Williams and these kinds of people. But it's these kinds of um, images And stereotypes and myths that that the minstrel show propagates and spreads that really become the basis for a lot of commercial forms of black popular music from from, uh, even some of the commercial jazz to commercial R&B to funk all the way through to commercial rap music to this day. So there are a lot of stereotypes. There are a lot of racial myths that are contained within popular culture that I'm arguing in, in this book really need to be interrogated so that we uh, if i can sort of borrow from uh, derrida we actually have to deconstruct a lot of these uh, myths and stereotypes that popular music and popular culture are sort of you know floating around swirling around us
0: so so be a little more specific what are some of the the, the myths and stereotypes that that originate in minstrel shows that that, that still might be with us today
2: um, well I, I would i would say that the, the this, this this whole notion of um, basically a lot of the clowning um, that that goes on. I mean, obviously back in the day we had comedy rap groups like the Fat Boys. Even the Beastie Boys, you know, did a lot of comedy rap if you look at their early, if you listen to their early work. And so you have a lot of the tropes of people doing sort of slapstick and, and really sort of mocking and making fun, if you will, of aspects of working class and working poor African-American culture. So that would be something that obviously goes back to minstrelsy Uh, Especially if you go back and look at the work by uh, Daddy Rice and those people that were talking about Let's Jump, Jim Crow, uh, and so on and so forth. And so this whole notion of blackface minstrelsy. These these images of the way that African Americans were perceived in the 19th century uh, during the period of enslavement, these images that were used literally as propaganda to say, well, they're not really fully human. These images have actually been carried forward. And the reason I start with the Harlem Renaissance is because – a lot of the Harlem Renaissance seeks to counter these, uh, if you will, anti-black racist images of African Americans. And so instead of saying, well, African Americans um, are primitive or exotic or highly erotic or highly sensual and sexual, the way that a lot of the, the minstrel shows sort of put forward, the Harlem Renaissance tries to develop, a, a if you will, an authentic um, image of what they were calling the new Negro, basically meaning that the so-called old Negro was the enslaved, um, um, shifling, um, grinning, uh, if you will, African American during that period, and where it was more affirmative during this, this whole New Negro movement uh, that was going on, that really the Harlem Renaissance is nothing but the aesthetic outgrowth of a larger uh, African American civil rights movement that was called the New Negro Movement, and that went on between 1895 and about
0: 1940. So, uh, so are they synonymous, the, the New Negro Movement and the Harlem Renaissance?
2: Um, you know what, uh, Matt, I would argue that they're not synonymous because it would almost be saying like the Black Power Movement is the Black Arts Movement. And no, see, the Black Arts Movement was the artistic wing or the artistic arm of the Black Power Movement. And, and so the New Negro Movement would be more or less the civil rights movement of the turn of the 20th century and the Harlem Renaissance was its artistic outgrowth and so now we go back to something that Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray have been talking about that that interestingly enough people in America have been more willing to sort of listen to African American art or African American artistic expressions about African American oppression than they are real social and political leaders talk about African American uplift and you know what it means to be enslaved for 350 years and, and then to come out of that and experience Jim Crow and uh, American apartheid and really no reparations, no kind of real assistance, if you will, to, to, to help the people start. And so we go back to this whole notion that, you know, that literally they've made something out of nothing and the art speaks to that, that whole aesthetic of making something out of nothing. And, and it's truly fascinating though. It, I mean, it's a very, very fascinating concept.
0: So so you're suggesting that uh, American society as a whole is more comfortable with African-Americans, uh, Art speaking to the oppression than they are with with politicians suggesting real change.
2: Yes, um, and I would even argue that even when it comes to African American art speaking to the oppression, there, there's still limits because right now you and I both know commercial rap is a lot bigger than alternative rap or political rap. So there was a time, you know, when groups like Public Enemy, Paris, Bahamadia, of these kinds of people in the early '90s were really sort of jousting with gangster rappers, but we saw which, which style won out. Gangster rap was the one that people were more willing to consume uh, gangster rap music over a lot of the political rap, you know, uh, and so it becomes really, really kind of interesting that, that art for us, I mean, I would say art for any oppressed group, really becomes a means of political expression in a way that it might not for a group that is not experiencing the, the intensity of the oppression. And so now we're talking about the art, if you will, of social transformation that literally oppressed groups can use art to express their humanity, in fact, rescue and reclaim their humanity and allow people to give people a window into a whole another world that they might otherwise not see.
0: Um, uh, getting back to, to minstrelsy through, through the Harlem Renaissance, what role do do women have in these movements, Okay so feminism?
2: This is going to be really, really interesting because uh, in the book, I point out that the first major African-American uh, social movement uh, to emerge was called the Black Women's Club Movement. And so, it, it you know, this was something that basically inspired the New Negro Movement. And so this was a movement of African-American women who basically sought to uh, basically uplift the African-American image. And most of these were church women uh, and so on and so forth. But it just becomes really, really interesting that oftentimes people negate um, women's contributions to the origins and the evolution of different art forms. And so what I want, wanted to do was to move from a black feminist perspective and focus on the contributions of African-American women at the outset of arguably one of the great, uh, one of the first great um, African-American artistic um, triumphs, which was the Harlem Renaissance. And so they are right there. So uh, folks like Zora, Zora Neale Hurston, Georgia Douglas Johnson, Jesse Fawcett, Nella Larson, I mean, they're right there at the core of the Harlem Renaissance, and in a sense, many of us have argued that the Harlem Renaissance was as anti-racist as it was um, anti-sexist. That that there really a feminist impulse runs throughout the Harlem Renaissance, as does, I would argue, a a a a a homosexual impulse runs throughout the Harlem Renaissance as well. And so the question becomes in the book: How is it that you know one of the first great African American artistic movements is so um, if you will, woman-centered and open to people of various sexual orientations, but hip hop becomes, at least from in many people's mind, hip hop becomes extremely misogynist and homophobic.
0: Do you think when we, when uh, most of us, when we're looking back upon the Harlem Renaissance, do you think we notice the the feminist and uh, LGBT strains in it? Um,
2: I, I think it depends on whose history. Uh You know, we're actually engaging. I mean, I think some of the conventional, some of the traditional histories mention it in passing, so it's a footnote. It's more of a a quick reference where if you look at work by Schwartz who talk about, you know, um, the gay voice in the Harlem Renaissance and you look at a lot of the more woman-centered work on the Harlem Renaissance, it's right there. And uh, many of the major players, I mean, from Langston Hughes and Conti Cullen to Zoner Hurston and Elaine Locke and these kinds of folks, many of these people had um, what, what, what I call in the book uh, transgressive sexualities. So it doesn't really fit into the conventional notion of this is what it means to be an artist, or this is what it means to be a woman, or this is what it means to be a person of Af- an African American. They're, they're really seeking to, to rebel against these socially um, acceptable ways. Uh, to actually be themselves and in that sense Matt they actually carve out a space for the jazz divas of the 1940s and 1950s many of the beats uh, and, the, and the beboppers and the, the beatniks and then the hippies and then all of the R&B and soul folk that are coming in the 60s and the 70s and then the incredible personalities that funk music produce and disco and then it leads all the way up to rap and neo soul and, uh, and rock rap and, and G-funk and all these different forms of rap music.
0: What would you say, then, um, musically, what are the salient musical forms that occurred during the, the Harlem Renaissance?
2: Um, definitely classic blues. Um, so basically, you know, when you start talking about people like uh, Ma Rainey, or Bessie Smith, or Ethel Waters, so you have classic blues and you have jazz that are going on. And, and in fact, jazz is so popular at the time that many historians refer to it as the jazz age in the 1920s. They, fer- they refer to it as the roaring 20s, but a lot of people acknowledge, you know, the Harlem Renaissance period as the jazz age. So just like uh, rap is is very, really, really popular right now, jazz was incredibly popular in the 1920s and the 1930s. And so it's kind of fascinating to see how does rap music trope on, how does it build on um, previous black popular music and the, and the pride of place that previous black popular musics have had within mainstream America. And in fact, I argue that... African Americans have consistently provided a soundtrack for America, not just Black America, but for America in general. I mean, most of the major musics that really sort of define generations of folk, at least in the, from the 20th century forward, have been have come out of the ghettos and the slums and the barrios. You know, and that's for me that's fascinating, though, because and to a certain extent, Matt, we can talk about a subaltern history then of hip hop. What happens if we actually look at American music, not from the point of view of the music industry and, and the music moguls, but what if we looked at it from the point of view of the, of the musicians and the people that actually sort of create the music in the juke joints and the nightclubs and the churches and, and so on and so forth.
0: And how would it be different? Well, it would
2: be different in that it would be working class focused. And, again, it's going to, we're going to be hard-pressed to find a form, at least of black popular music, that doesn't come out of the hood, that, doesn't, that isn't produced from the working class. That's even, what you talk about spirituals, the way spirituals were created during enslavement, uh, the, our enslaved ancestors, they were workers, right? And certainly if you go to blues, everybody knows that. I mean, that's literally working class music from jazz to, to ragtime, everybody. I mean, I mean, it's really, really fascinating when you start thinking about the role of workers in the production, in music production, the way that they cre- keep creating these various styles of music. And, and in the book, you'll notice, I identify over three, uh, three dozen forms of rap music. So there are three, do- three dozen genres of rap music. And so depending on which region or city or state you come from, one form of rap music might be more popular than another.
0: Mm-hmm. It seems like m- many of these movements as well, are, are, are they always urban mo- movements or do, do rural folk play into this as well?
2: Um, I, I would I would argue that, especially with the blues, you have a lot of, of rural influence. But at the same time, you and I both know that the African-American experience in the 20th century is nothing if it's not an experience of migration and mobility and movement and, and traveling. I mean, I think that after, after 350 years of being shackled and chained to specific plantations and regions of the country – African-Americans, you know, I mean, they don't call it the, the great migration for nothing. You know, when you have five, six million African-Americans moving out of the south and spreading to the north and the Midwest and the west and the southwest, I mean, that's a fascinating experience. And along with, with that movement, you have music. So, I mean, you have music that that transitions with them. So I think that a lot of African-American music has rural roots, Um but and I would certainly say that, especially when you start talking about jazz. I mean, jazz was created in New Orleans, and most people would, uh, 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 most people would argue that blues was created in a rural setting and environment as well. And if and if most of, most of us acknowledge that blues and jazz are basically foundational to black popular music, along with the spirituals, which also has rural roots, then that would give us you know uh, sort of license to emphasize the rural roots if you will, of uh, black popular music, if not American music in general.
0: Mm-hmm. I think, I, I'm jumping ahead here, but um, I think somewhere you, you use the phrase that rap or hip-hop generally is the re-Africanization of music. Yes, Yeah. Uh, how is that?
2: Well, how is that? Well, Does that
0: fit into this, this, this movement, migration? Story you're telling?
2: Definitely, because if you go back and you and you and you and you really really do some of this uh, what what they would call ethnomusicology, I'm just gonna call it musicology. If you go and do uh, musicology and you really focus on African music, you'll notice that some of the low drum tones in continental Africa they they mirror the sound of an 808 drum machine. I mean, so that low bass tone that 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 it seemed, for whatever reason uh, a lot of hip hop youth really seem to gravitate towards. What if that same sound can be f- found throughout various forms of music in the Caribbean, in Latin America, in Africa? And, and, and to a certain extent, this re-Africanization that I'm talking about is that the, the, the rap music starts out as a very sort of in-your-face form of music. It's, it's very, I mean, it, I mean, obviously it offends lots of people because what they see themselves as doing is speaking truth to power and basically telling it like it is. Now, the reality of the matter is that a lot of people, they really don't want to know what's going on in the, in the barrios and the slums and the ghettos. They don't really care about that. As long as you show up to work and you smile and you, you, know, you sort of do, do your duty, nobody really wants to know the, 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 the loves, the, the losses, the, the, the hurt, the pain of what's going on with poor folk. And it's really interesting because, as you can see with the upcoming election, poor people and, and, and working class people, middle class people, that's the majority of the people in this country. And so I think that that's why the music resonates well beyond the ghetto, is because most of us can relate to it because we a lot of us have working class backgrounds, if we're not still working class and working poor.
0: Mm-hmm. So ba- back to, to the order of the book, let's let's skip to chapter three, and uh, the Black Arts Movement. Tell us right. about that, please.
2: Okay. Well, the Black Arts Movement, really, I would argue, is a mid twentieth century outgrowth of the Harlem Renaissance, and I think that there's a tendency because you know most people don't really sort of engage African-American history, they don't re- really sort of realize that a lot of the folks in the black arts movement were building on a lot of the themes and the motifs that were put forward during the Harlem Renaissance. And so when you start talking about the black arts movement, uh, basically it is the artistic wing of the black power movement, and it featured, you know, prominent personalities like Sonia Sanchez and Amiri Baraka, Hakim Adabuti, Nikki Giovanni, Maya Angelou, these kinds of people that, that really sort of emphasize black pride, black unity, and they also wanted to emphasize while they were doing that, you know, that, that, that there was a certain kind of distinctiveness to African-American culture, and they wanted to, to celebrate that. You know, so often they felt like uh, people had sort of denigrated um, African-Americans, and so they wanted to celebrate uh, what it meant to be African-American, and they wanted to produce an art that reflected uh, African-American culture as opposed to corporate conceptions of black culture.
0: Mm-hmm. What um, Are there spaces between these movements, like from, I don't know, traditionally what academics may think of, or historians may think of the end of the Harlem Renaissance and the beginning of, say, Black Arts Movement, Black Power? What, what happens in these, in these uh, temporal spaces?
2: Well, I would argue that, at least in terms of the connection between the Harlem Renaissance and the Black Arts Movement, The Harlem Renaissance really is sort of taken out by the end of the 30s, so I would say that Zora Neale Hurston's The Eyes Are Watching God in 1937 was one of the last works, and definitely by the time Richard Wright published his Native Son in 1940, the Harlem Renaissance is basically over. And at that point, the very next year, you already know, uh, A. Philip Randolph was was, uh, pushing for a march on Washington in 1941. And so I would argue that the modern civil rights movement actually starts in the early 40s, and I know most people want to go to Brown versus the Board of Education, but obviously something had to be going on before the, that case even got to the Supreme Court. So, again, there's a lot of groundswell. There's a lot of activity. And it's not pretty, but I do see high levels of overlap in terms of a social justice agenda between the New Negro Movement and the Civil Rights Movement. And I also hear musicians building on the sounds of the Harlem Renaissance. Say, for instance, if we just focus on the major soundtrack of the Harlem Renaissance, which was jazz, Um the the second generation of jazzers really became the beboppers, and so you have a whole bebop movement that's going on right you know right at the end of the 30s and, and all the way through uh, to to the mid 50s until Charlie Parker passes away I believe in 1955, and so you know you have these this this really kind of incredible explosion of African American youth art and culture and music, and it becomes so influential Matt that you have uh, white youth who who actually are, are deeply influenced by the bebop movement. And, you know, obviously those those folks are called the beat generation, people like Jack Kerouac and, and and so on and so forth. And so that becomes really, really kind of interesting that literally they take the name of their generation and it's named after something that was really, you know, when people said somebody was a deadbeat or you're offbeat or you, you feel beat down uh, and so on and so forth. I mean, you really look at that. Uh, in this book, I also wanted to emphasize interracial alliances. The way that the Harlem Renaissance youth were in dialogue to a certain extent with Lost Generation youth or the way that bebop youth are, we're in dialogue with beat generation youth, and it's really interesting. So I'm saying that the hip hop generation isn't the first generation to be awkwardly integrated, if you will. That this has actually been going on even before it was legal to to for us to connect and and share social spaces and political spaces and and recreational spaces and so on and so forth. We've always had a brave people in America who sort of challenged these, the status quo, even because they knew that the status quo was wrong at the time. And obviously, history has proven that America was wrong on the issue of race. Uh, you know, it was just, it was dead wrong. It was just completely wrong. And a lot of the youth have been trailblazers and pioneers in sort of pushing the country forward to say, well, if we're ever going to really achieve American democracy, we're going to have to, um, everybody in America has the right to be American on their own terms. And I actually, hear a lot of that in the music, including rap. Mm-hmm. I,
0: I, I'm, I'm assuming that um, these these alliances between, say, white culture and African American culture in the past they had they were much more conscious of what they were doing and aware of what they're doing than they might be now. Do you think?
2: I, I would say that you have because we are because of black popular music and and black popular culture and American popular culture. Are taking place within a capitalist society. You have high levels of consumerism. So what you have, um, uh, at least during the 1920s and 1930s, you have the Lost Generation basically consuming. Um, they become consumers of jazz and, and and lots of kind of jazz dance and and so on and so forth. But some of them, uh, at least uh, Langston Hughes and a lot of the Harlem Renaissance, has felt that more could have been done to to make connections because obviously the lost generation youth are going to have a certain kind of privilege within a society that is, you know, racially segregated. So the fact that you have Harlem Renaissance folks constantly quoting and making reference to the lost generation, and it's very difficult to find um, lost generation uh, youth who would actually acknowledge the you know, Harlem Renaissance beyond jazz musicians. So it's almost as if the the politics of the Harlem Renaissance, the the literature, the... The, the, the cultural act a lot of the other aspects of the cultural act- activities were sort of rendered invisible, and what they sought to to pick and choose was the music and I think that something similar is happening right now with um, uh, if you will white suburban hip hop youth that that you have lots of people who, who are consuming African American music, but they actually know very little about contemporary African american politics mm-hmm. and so that that that's a real contradict. that's a real sort of thorny schizophrenic kind of issue. When you have people sort of consuming these tales, these narratives of ghetto life, but they really actually know very little about actual, they don't really read works on the sociology of the ghetto or something. I
0: mean, I think it gets back to the idea, minstrel shows and such, right, of African Americans as entertainers. There you go. Purely, right, entertain, to entertain white people. I, I, well.
2: would, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, and in fact, Matt, I would even add um, African-American athletes. I believe that uh-huh. uh, I would go to the French theorist uh, uh, Jean Baudrillard, who when he talks about sports as a spectacle, the way that, that football and basketball and baseball and a lot of these sports literally have become social spectacles. And if you look at the consumption of a lot of these, uh, if you will, black bodies, in sports and all of the commentary on how much agility and dexterity and how much facility they have to move and groove and shake and bake on the court. But oftentimes there's not a real, a lot of discussion of, I don't know, of, of the intellectual activity. That, that's all, that, that you have a mind-body connection. There's not a split when it comes to African-Americans and other athletes. And, and so, again, they, they sort of freeze frame or suspend a lot of the intellectual activity and focus purely on the entertainment. Aspects of it, where you and I both know. I mean, a lot of these athletes have to memorize and and study very intricate charts and and analyses in order to actually do what they do and be so successful at it.
0: Well, I think the uh, the commercial. Let's, let's take the NBA for instance, and the okay. idea that you know uh, black black men are just have you know bodies made for the NBA. Um, we capitalistically we can't afford not to think that because I mean, because it it's so invested in this image
2: that right,
0: right we we want to see uh, a black men play basketball
2: and and that that in and of itself um obviously you know i mean there there's some stereotypes around it because you you saw with the brouhaha surrounding Jeremy Lynn. i mean i mean here is mm-hmm. an asian brother who who can hoop with the best of them and so that, that becomes really really kind of interesting as to I mean, are are there socially are there still in the 21st century socially acceptable roles for different races of people different genders of people different sexual orientations and religions I mean I mean is that is that democracy though and I think that hip hop if you listen to alternative rap underground rap political rap even a group of rock rap one of the major rock rap groups and one of my favorites Rage Against the Machine they are questioning whether America has actually achieved democracy. Or whether democracy is an ongoing project. I mean, maybe we haven't arrived at American democracy, but maybe that's an end goal. And I'm saying even hip hop, even rap music, can contribute to that discourse.
0: So, so back to the Black Arts Movement. Uh, what, <laughs> what role, what role do women play in the Black Arts Movement? Oh, that, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I mean, if you if you really really think about it,
2: that the, the field that I'm working in right now in African American studies, I mean. African-American women were central to the whole black studies movement. Um, African-American women were central to the black power movement. They were central to the black arts movement. And what they did uh, that's really interesting is that I find in the 1960s, late 60s and the 70s, many African-American women artists are actually, they have one foot in the black power movement and the other foot in the women's liberation movement. And what what I argue in the book is that it's really interesting because Most people actually don't acknowledge the feminist art movement. So just like I'm saying the black power movement had an artistic wing or movement, so did the women's liberation movement, and it was called the feminist art movement. And this is really, really a fascinating piece because what we're talking about is women-centered art. Kind of like during the black arts movement, they said, well, we want to make – Um, We want to make art not only about black people, but in the best interest of black people. Well, the feminist art movement had a very similar uh, aesthetic, that they wanted to make women-centered art that showed women in in powerful positions and women as they really were. So they weren't just these sort of shrinking violets. They were not just the femme fatales. But what about, you know, all of the completely incredible women throughout human history, particularly in American history, who have made contributions that you and I, Matt, enjoy to this day? And the fact that we, a lot of our children in the K-12 system, don't get exposed to story. What they get exposed to is his story. And that that's just not democratic. That's not balanced, especially, uh, Matt, if I can just keep it real with you, especially since the majority of the United States of America are actually women. So the majority of our uh, population is actually women. So how truly democratic, you know, are we as a country? And so for me, when I start thinking about feminist rap or woman-centered rap or woman-centered neo-soul, I'm hearing the feminism the womanism of uh, hip hop generation women so even there there's there's an inheritance that you can't you probably can't name a major cultural or political movement that hip hop hasn't inherited something from but if you only focus on commercial rap music or gangster rap you're not going to you're not going to be able to hear or experience hip hop's full inheritance because mm-hmm. to me Commercial rap and gangster rap, they really sort of acknowledge the hip-hop generation's inheritance from black exploitation films of the 1970s, more so than probably any other um, artistic movement or something like that. And so that's going to be really interesting because we, can, we already know about the problematic of black exploitation movies, you know, in the 1970s. Films like Superfly and, and Shaft and Cleopatra Jones and Dolomite and, and all these kinds of things, those are very sort of problematic representations if not misrepresentations of black life and culture. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so let's move. I think you've made a good transition to, to chapter four. Um, uh, talk about the 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 conundrum that the hip hop use the term hip hop feminism uh, and and their their need to I don't know if it's a need but the, to choose between hip hop and feminism or even just uh, you know African American women and generally and. Right choosing between you know i say black power and the 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 feminist movement
2: well part of what i tried to lay out in that chapter is that the whole notion of you know the whole question of whether somebody can be a hip-hopper and a feminist is 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 a moot point it's 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 not a fair question yes obviously somebody can be a hip-hop and feminist i mean there there are Forms of rap music that are feminist, there are forms of rap music that are women centered, and not every form of rap music is misogynist and full of a bunch of testosterone. And so, what I tried to do in that chapter, chapter four, was to show that back in the day in the 60s and the 70s, they used to ask, they used to pose a similar question to African American women and say, Well, are you down with the black power movement or are you down with the women's liberation movement? And a lot of the sisters actually drew from both and showed that, yes, that they can have commitments to fighting for racial justice, just like they could have commitments to fighting for gender justice. And so the hip-hop feminist movement, right, the hip-hop women's movement that's going on right now, is challenging those people who are trying to push for some kind of orthodoxy in terms of women's liberation movements and even uh, feminism. And they're saying there's there's no such thing really as feminism, singular. There's only feminisms, plural, that each woman... Has the ability to and has the right to have their own unique expressions of what it means to be a woman, and that, that, that this is really strange because people don 't do this when it comes to men. A man can just be any kind of way he wants to be any anytime he wants to be that, but with women, people are constantly trying to put them into these little categories in these little boxes and and hip hop feminism actually breaks out of it now. We have, to, we have to ask a serious question about what really makes hip-hop feminism distinct and unique from the feminism that was going on during the women's liberation movement of the 1960s and the 1970s. And I would argue that it has a lot to do with uh, their use of uh, social media and their ability, you know, their, their, their use of cyber politics. I mean, they're using new technologies to mobilize and politicize young women in a way that goes well beyond the American Academy. And so that's where you can see that, that, that really there are some obstacles in terms of reaching hip-hop generation women, you know, um, if, if indeed everybody's going to corn everything to, to a college campus.
0: Um, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought for a second. Uh, so who, uh, if we're talking about, say, rap specifically, or even I suppose Neo Soul, um, are there specific artists, that we can point to as hip hop feminists.
2: Um, now, yes, now in Trisha Rose's book called Black Noise, she points out that a lot of hip hop women don't—they sort of reject the label feminist. So, I'm not saying that they would agree actually with the term, as much as I'm saying if we look at the the, the rubric of what what you know what we would consider feminist, somebody that you know really is pro women's rights. You know, uh, pro-women's decolonization, they're for that because they realize that women in America have been colonized, uh, high levels of it, in fact, and the need for decolonizing women's life worlds, women's lived experiences, uh, the whole nine. And so we can point to women who, even if the, you don't want to consider them feminist or, or womanist or what have you, they certainly are pro-women. They, they certainly are putting forward uh, images of women that actually go counter to male supremacy or patriarchy or misogyny or whatever term, fly academic term we want to use. And so I would argue that people like India Irie, Jill Scott, Erica Badu, um, there's so many in fact Michelle and Degio Cello I mean there's so many of them in terms of rappers we could point to Jean Grey controversial but Jean Grey nonetheless uh, uh Lauren Hill obviously uh, even somebody like Eve Queen Latifah I mean there's so many of them out there that their music is literally woman centered but it's not going to be it's not going to be a perfect uh, it's not going to it's not going to be a perfect feminist expression which I don't necessarily know if there is such a thing
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, discuss the difference between conscious and and commercial rap
2: alright well conscious and commercial commercial rap is obviously going to be what, what we consider hip pop or so hip POP so that's just hip popular culture it's it's really sort of it's, it's what you hear on the radio 24 7 and um, really this music revolves a lot around uh, let's say sex drinking drugs and clubs Right, so you're going to constantly hear this in most commercial uh, rap music. Is this whole hyper focus, if you will, on human sexuality, on pleasure, on recreation, on leisure? But conscious rap, on the other hand, is normally going to be um, culturally relevant, historically rooted. Right, it's going to have some kind of social uh, agenda, social vision that's going to provide an alternative to to the world the way it is now. So you have high levels of idealism. I'll go ahead and admit that. You know, might even have what the Frankfurt School critical theorists would call utopia. So you have this this, this whole this, this image that, indeed, the critical theory is critical theory because a normal theory just describes and explains. But a critical theory describes, explains, and offers an alternative. And I think that it's, it's, it's rappers, it's political rappers and conscious rappers and alternative rappers and underground rappers' ability to offer alternatives to not simply ghetto youth, but even to suburban youth, this is the real salience. This is the real power, if you will, of rap music, though, is that, is that it, it's, it's really resonating in, in a very sort of transcultural, multicultural way, even though it grows out of distinct sort of black and brown uh, experiences. There's something very universal about those experiences right now.
0: Do you think, this is kind of, I guess, a sociological, political, economic question, do, do these different uh, forms of rap have, have different audiences?
2: Oh, most certainly. Say, for instance, uh, Matt, in the book, I talk about the homosexual hip-hop movement. And so there's a form of rap called queer rap. Uh, they even call it homo-hop. And that mm-hmm. specific, I mean, I mean, there are literally hundreds of, uh, queer rap artists. But most, I don't know, but most, most, a lot of folks in hip-hop culture, they're, they're invisible. I and mean, if I can quote, you know, sound like Raph Ellison. But these, these forms, these rappers have been rendered invisible. In my own collection, I guarantee you I have hundreds of female rappers. But only the most hypersexual female rappers are the ones that people actually know about. People like Nicki Minaj, Trina, Kia, uh, Foxy Brown, Little Kim, Jackie O, and so on and so forth. So it's almost as if, it's almost as if, you're right, there's, there are particular demographics for different genres of rap. But, you know, Matt, we could say the exact same thing about rap, rock music. I mean, there, there are lots of different genres of rock, from the progressive rock to pop rock, to I mean, to, to alternative rock. I mean, there's so many different genres. And I think that this is what's really, really fascinating is that when it comes to rap music and hip-hop culture, people act like there's only one form of rap, commercial rap or gangster rap, that that's it. Those two forms of rap, that, that, that's it. So those of us that are really, really deep in the underground rap groups like Jurassic Five or Talib Kweli or Most Def, Dead Prez, Bahamadia Mystic, I mean, so many of these – like conscious rappers, political rappers, message rappers. I mean, it's so sad. So now, Matt, you can see in my classrooms when when my students ask me, but, hey, uh, Dr. Baga, unfortunately, my parents, every time I say rap, they only think about NWA or, or Lil Wayne or 50 Cent or whoever it is that they, you know, heard a news report about on, you know, some show. And they don't know about all these other progressive forms of rap music. Now, I'm not saying that they're perfect. You're going to still have profanity in them. You're still going to have questionable gender and sexual politics and so on and so forth. But let's, let's keep it real, man. Aren't most people in America like that, though? So doesn't rap simply reflect the contradictions of the larger American body politic? Aren't there people who we know who are sort of – I don't know. They're like schizophrenic. One day they're, they're pro-homosexual rights. The next day they're homophobe, mm-hmm. unfortunately. You're right, and I just think that it was sort of Peter tottering between a lot of these contradictions. But hip hop's contradictions are America's contradictions. is not specific to black youth. It's not specific to white suburban youth who listen to hip hop music. These contradictions are as American as apple pie, a big, uh, big Mac, and baseball. I mean, this is just this is just American contradictions. A lot of these, mm-hmm. even even gangster. I mean, who? What if gangster rappers? A lot of their icons come straight out of Hollywood movies. Scarface, The Godfather, Goodfellas. I mean, please, when Wyclef Jean says you can't blame it on hip-hop, I I, I can hear him, though. But I'm saying, as hip hopers, we have to take responsibility for our our actions, though, and our words. Why? Because words have become weapons in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. It's verbal violence, if you will.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I'm wondering about, again, getting back to 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 uh, gay and lesbian presence in in especially commercial rap i wonder if right. it's not a lot like again that using uh, sports as an analogy that you know there, there are gay and le- well gay men in the nfl or in the nba sure. but it's not taught talk- and i guess they're in the closet uh, right. in, in a certain sense do you think it's that way with commercial rap i mean there's very, gotta very, be very much
2: so very much so in fact if you get a if you get a documentary um, I think it's by Alex Henderson. It's called Pick Up the Mic, and this is a documentary on the homo-hop movement put out by Rhino. Um, it's a very, very fascinating thing because it talks about closeted rappers. It, it talks about um, how you have a lot of hip-hop homosexuals that are hidden in plain sight. they write right out there, but, you know, again... I mean, I I hate to say it, but there are formulas that are floating around commercial rap music. And so you kind of have to go out there and be a thug or be a hustler or be a player or do, you know, the whole pimp game thing in order to really sort of make your record sell. At least this is what they feel. And there are enough, you know, there are are many uh, homosexual hip hoppers. It's just that, you know, again, America still hasn't, really sort of embraces democracy because people have a right to their sexual orientation just like people have a right to their religion in a truly, truly democratic society. And so hip-hop, to a certain extent, reflects larger social ills and issues, right? And what it does is it sort of heightens them. It, it intensifies them. It amplifies them to where, wow, you know, now you have people who, I don't know, who have never said uh, anything uh, progressive about, you know, people's right to their sexual orientation. They will come out and condemn some gangster rapper. And say, oh, he's a homophobe, he's misogynist. These same people hardcore misogynists, right, in every other way. But it it makes it seem like it's more egregious because uh, kids from the projects are saying it. Now, again, I'm not apologizing for it. It is wrong. It is just as wrong as two left shoes, Matt. But the reality of the matter is, though, if if it's wrong for hip-hop, isn't it wrong for politicians? Isn't it wrong for the larger American body politic? Why are people sort of focusing on ghetto youth and working-class youth? Listen, Matt, a youth like Eminem. This cat comes from the trailer parks. So he's showing you the connections that can be made between the trailer parks and the projects. I feel like he is a, he's like a bridge builder. That's an interesting motif right there. That's a doctoral dissertation waiting to be written, Matt. Because what we're saying is there's a lot of working class youth in this country who feel like what most people are talking about, the American dream, is the American nightmare for a lot of hip-hop youth. hmm and that's tricky because they tell telling us there ain't going to be no Social Security around for us when we get older. But yeah, we're paying into something. We don't even know if it's going to be there. So, people, you hear a lot of that resentment. You hear a lot of that angst. And you hear that in rap music, though. And people don't want to hear that. They want to hear that it's Leave It to Beaver, it's the Cosby Show, and, you know, hey, it's some kind of, you know, it, everything is all good and, and dandy. But it's not. And they're saying that. So instead of just getting mad... Back and going out there and gangbanging and doing crazy stuff. Tupac Shakur said, "Listen, if I wasn't saying this stuff into a microphone, I would actually be out there doing it." You see, he, he said, "You ought to be happy." There's a thing called rap music because it's helping me vent. This is therapeutic. I, you know, I, me personally, I hate to sound like France Fanon, but I mean, this is catharsis. I mean, they're completely—that's therapeutic for them to sort of get that off their chest.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we focus on some of those who it apparently isn't just therapeutic. and actually go and. Uh that's another story, though, right? That, uh, those that are, not only do they vent through the microphone, but sometimes they, they vent for real, right? Oh, oh, m- most certainly. And, but, and, but, and and we focus on them.
2: And and to be honest with you, there are some people who are little studio gangsters, and I mean they're only a gangster in the studio, and they try to translate their gangster stu- you know, their, their 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 gangsterism from the studio into the street, and they get taken out real quick because the streets are rough. I'm sorry to say that. I mean, this is the reality, though. I mean, it's a concrete jungle. Bob Marley had it right. <laughs> so if we really, really deal with it, there is a hyper-focus on, on hip-hoppers when they do something bad, and right. they are, they're rendered invisible when they do something good. Say, for instance, when Jay-Z did his clean water campaign throughout Africa, people I didn't see a single major media outlet do a story on that. But if Jay-Z does something crazy, that's going to be on, that's going to be the leading story on the nightly news. That's really tricky to me though. I'm just saying I'm trying to understand, can they not see that this is a diabolical double standard that's going on that these youth are already so far down that it would be really good when they do do something good, let's talk about that. Man, do you remember when Common got invited to the White House and and the, everybody criticized the uh, the Obama administration for inviting Common and Jill Scott basically Common now, you can't get any more squeaky clean than common, can you? I mean, if he's hardcore, then we're all lost. I'm telling you you there's nobody more g rated than common almost really <laughs> That's absurd to me though see they don't see all the when people hear rap, what they hear is commercial and gangster rap. When I say commercial, that's like a cold word for hypersexual rap. when I say gangster that's that's basically they think that's rap music only about crime. but mm-hmm. if you look at my work. In the last chapter of my book, Hip Hop uh, Inheritance, hey, uh, Matt, I actually talk about social and political critique even as it emerges in gangster rap. I said, yes, most of it's misogynist, most of it's homophobic, but are we throwing the baby out in the bathwater if you don't acknowledge the fact that it does offer some level of political critique and, and social commentary? That would be like people saying we don't want to ever say the name Thomas Jefferson again because he committed statutory rape with Sally Hemings. He was 43. She was, what, 13, 14 or something? I mean, so I don't see them doing that when it comes to these great white male political figures, but when it comes to, uh, uh, you know, a gangster rapper from the projects, then they have to be everything they say has got to be completely up, up to snuff and main point. That That is so unfair. That's a double standard. That's just not right, man. That, that's mm-hmm. just not cool. In fact, it's, it smacks of a certain kind of anti-black racism, if
0: I can just mm-hmm. tell it like it is, you know? I I, I agree. Um, and I agree that we could talk for a long time about, <laughs> about these topics. And yeah, man. So I think I'm going to cut us off now. Um, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a fabulous book, Robica. or, or you. And, um, you. And I look forward to actually reading the next two, which I haven't read. The, other, uh, the second one is already out, correct?
2: The second one is out. The third one, the second one's called Hip Hop Simnesia, came out summer 2012. And we are looking to have uh, the hip hop movement. Uh, the third volume out in summer 2013
0: fabulous well um, thank you Raylan for being on the show and I, I, I appreciate your time thank you so much I really do appreciate it
1: you've been listening to a conversation with Rayland Robica about his book Hip Hop's Inheritance from the Harlem Renaissance to the Hip Hop Feminist Movement published by Lexington Books in 2011 check back with new books and popular music regularly for interviews with authors of books about popular music I'm your host Matt Smith-Larman thanks for listening